So one of the things that I enjoy most about my job or my occupation uh, is that I get to interact with, I get to meet, workshop with different pastors, different speakers, leaders, things like that. See, as a pastor, I'm part of a couple different cohorts that uh, I'm able to create community with other lead pastors, other people that do the same kind of job that I'm doing. So that way, when we have some struggles, we can call each other, we can lean on each other. When we don't know what to do, like let's say a pandemic happens and none of us know how to live stream, we can call each other and figure out what to do. Uh, when we are struggling, when we need resources, we can call each other. It's, I love being able to do that. And I am part of a preaching cohort that meets uh, once a quarter. The best part about this preaching cohort is we go to get dinner afterwards, and it's always really nice dinner, and I don't pay anything. So that's really why I'm a part of it, actually. But at this preaching cohort, it's at uh, Grace Community Church in Fulton. It's a really big church uh, in, in Fulton. And uh, Mitchell, the lead pastor there, I got lunch with him when we first launched, and uh, he invited me to be part of it. I've been part of it ever since. It's been about three years now. And um, at this cohort, if you know me, if you don't know me, I'll, I'll let you know, but I'm a pretty confident guy. I'm confident in my abilities. I'm confident in, um, I'm, not, I'm not easily intimidated, okay? I'm not easily intimidated. But for some reason, that first cohort that I went to, I remember being very intimidated because very quickly, there was about 15, 20 other pastors there. Very quickly, I learned that I was probably the dumbest person there. Like quickly, I quickly learned that. Um, everyone make these great points about preaching, and I would be like, I never thought of that in my life, and that's a great point. Um, everyone was better able to analyze other people's speaking. Um, everyone read more books than me. Everyone knew more about the Bible than I did. And in fact, there was one time where in our preaching hour, we talked very practically about ways to get better at preaching, and uh, we were talking about preaching illustrations. So we all had to send a preaching illustration to uh, somebody that was there, and they would put it up on the screen. And when it came up on the screen, we would all look at it. We'd all analyze it. The person who gave that illustration would explain why they gave that illustration, why they used that picture, whatever. Uh, and then we would all discuss it and say what we liked about it, what we didn't, why it worked, things like that. One after another after another, people would put it up, and everyone would look at it and be like, oh, that's great. And they would like compliment each other and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to use that one. Yeah, oh, this is how it works, and analyze it. And then mine came up. And I don't even remember what it was, if I'm being honest. But mine came up, and everyone looked at it, and I started explaining the illustration, and they went, huh, okay. Like nothing, crickets. And I'd be like, okay. Uh, so I kind of explained a little more, and they just kept looking. You know that like look where it's like, okay, that's an illustration. Like they said nothing, no nice things about it, no compliments, and then they just moved on to the next one. And at that point, I remember in my head thinking very clearly, I do not belong here. The, these people are way too smart. I do not belong here. They know I don't belong here. I don't match up. I'm not on par. This was a mistake. I need to get out of here ASAP. Luckily, there's dinner after this. But we've all had those moments where we felt like, I, I don't know if I belong. I don't know if I belong here. Here's some examples of that. Um, maybe you go to a party uh, back when you were allowed to, and you would go to this party, and you'd be like, I, all these people that are here, they're not my people. I just don't belong here. They have different interests than me, and I'm just kind of stuck here awkwardly. They know I don't belong here. They all know each other. I don't. I don't belong here. Maybe even in your family, you think, I'm like, I'm like the black sheep of the family, or you go to your in-laws and like, I definitely am not like the rest of my in-laws. I don't belong here. Maybe you hang out with a group of friends, and you just kind of have that feeling like everyone really gets along, and you kind of get along. You just feel like, ah, I don't know if I belong with this group. I don't belong here. A lot of times our insecurities and our past and our thoughts about ourselves 
make us think that we do not measure up to the standard that we need to to be part of whatever group it is. And there is no better example of this thought being prevalent in our minds than in church. A lot of us will tend to think, we'll look at the pastor, we'll look at the worship team, we'll look at some of the leaders, some of the people that are up on stage and think, yeah, they're just a little smarter than me. They know a little more than me. They're a little holier than me. They're better people than me. If they knew what I did during the week, if they knew how I acted all week long, if they really knew who I was, they really understood who I was, they would know what I already know. I don't belong here. It's so easy for us to think that. If you have ever felt that you do not belong, that the God of the universe could not love you, that you are too bad of a person, that you come from too messed up of a situation, if you've ever thought that you have made too many mistakes, then the book of Matthew and Matthew chapter 1 is the perfect chapter and the perfect start for you. Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1. We'll also have it on the screen. As a church, we have been encouraging you to read the book of Matthew with us. We've posted about it online every single day. Uh, we even emailed out a, uh, a, a reading plan. I've had them printed out, but we haven't had church for two weeks, so by the time you're here, it'll be a little too late. Every day, we've encouraged you to read a book of Matthew, one or two Proverbs, and then just a verse of Psalm. And what's great is if you get to keep up with us and you read every day, by the end of this month, you would have read two books of the Bible. And for some of us, we don't read a lot. Now, one thing I do want to encourage you as you're reading these, these things, if, if there's a day that you miss, and then there's two days that you miss, instead of trying to fit three or four days into one day just to try to catch up, just stick with whatever's supposed to be that day. Just go in order because I don't want you to be overwhelmed. We're going to take a break from it next month, and we'll start another one in April. But if you have been reading the book of Matthew, you've already read Matthew chapter 1. And to just give you a little background on Matthew, Matthew is written by Matthew, a guy named Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, Luke tells us that Matthew, after he met Jesus, gave up everything that he had in order to follow Jesus. Matthew was a Levite, as in he was, he was Jewish. So he understood the Old Covenant. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the promise of the Messiah, which is the Old Testament. The Old Covenant talks about that constantly, the promise of this Messiah coming. He, um, he understood Abraham and David. He understood the importance of them. So the book of Matthew is one of the four Gospels. There's four Gospels. The Gospels talk about the life of Jesus from four different perspectives. Each gospel gives a, gives a different angle, a different perspective on what actually happened. And here's uh, why each gospel can be a little different. Imagine if, we, if the people that are here, um, if out of all the people that were here, Frank murdered me. I said something you didn't like, he murdered me. If all of us went to trial after this, not me, I'd be dead, but everybody else, they would, give a, they would give an account of what they witnessed. And they would all say something differently. Maybe one of them would say, I don't... Frank was jealous of how good Eric looks. Maybe Pat would say, I don't know, Frank, Frank just was, he hasn't eaten enough meat in a while, so he just got angry. They had all have different things that they would say, right? They would all have different ways to approach it. And all of them would be right, right? They would all come from a different angle. That's what the four Gospels do. It's different authors talking to a different audience and a different perspective of Jesus. It's a little different, but it's all pointing to the same Jesus. And here's a quick breakdown of how the Gospels work. Matthew uh, talks about Jesus as the king of the Jews. Uh, so he talks a lot about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, uh, the king of the Jews. Mark, in the book of Mark, we learn that Jesus is a lowly servant, that he is a leader by serving. Luke, we learn that he is the son of man, as in he is, he is the son of Adam. He is uh, 100% man, so that way he can pay for the sins. And then in John, we learn that he is the son of God. 
So four different gospels talking about the same things that happened with Jesus, recounting his ministry and his life, but in four different perspectives. Matthew talked about him being the king of the Jews. Matthew, being a Jew himself, wanted to explain to fellow Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king. That is why when you read the, the book of Matthew, you will see that Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot. In fact, there's nobody that quotes the Old Testament in the New Testament than Matthew. He quotes it over a hundred times. He quotes it more than any other New Testament writer. So now understanding that, understanding who Matthew was and his point of view, let's start with the book of Matthew. We're going to start in verse one right at the beginning. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew gets right to the point by calling Jesus the Messiah. He's referencing both David here and Abraham. The Jewish people would know who Abraham was. They would know who David was. So Matthew starts with what is considered crucially important, especially back then, was somebody's genealogy, their family history, where they came from, their family tree. But for the Messiah, this is even more important because prophets would prophesy that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and from the lineage of Abraham. So if Jesus did not come from Abraham or David, then he would not be fulfilling the prophecies that we see in Isaiah and in some of the other Old Testament prophets. He had to come from that lineage. In Luke, we see a different genealogy of Jesus. Uh, we see it through, through Mary's family tree. Um, but Matthew gives us genealogy from Joseph's family tree. Joseph is not his real father, it's his adopted father. And here's what's even amazing about that. Um, Jesus being adopted by Joseph also fulfills a prophecy. You might have heard this verse in, during Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. To us a child is born, as in he is born a human birth because he is one of us. He became one of us to save us. But to us a child is given, as in adopted. Just like we, when we accept Christ, are adopted into Christ's family, into God's family, he was also adopted. Both Mary and Joseph, they are both descendants of David. So Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the family lineage. And here's how Matthew explains. He starts giving us the lineage. And I'm going to read this kind of quickly. So uh, keep up. Chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minadab. Minadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. At this point, my guess is if you read it this week, or if you just listened, you were hoping that I would stop. You did not want to hear any more names. My guess is this week when you read uh, Matthew chapter 1, around this point, you skipped ahead until the end of all the names, right? That's what we do. We go, these are a bunch of names I don't know. I don't get it. I'm skipping ahead. I, I'm not dealing with this. And most of you are like, please don't keep saying names. I'm, I'm getting bored with this. I get why we do that. But these names are important, and we'll come back to these names. Let's skip to verse 17, the last verse in Matthew we're going to look at. Because thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Here's what I love about this verse. 
Um, Matthew has given us a little bit of an Easter egg here. That's what this is. If you don't know what Easter egg is, here's what it is. If you ever watch like Marvel movies, in the background, there will be little things that you didn't notice that are actually Easter eggs. If you see that, you'll be like, oh, wait, I, I didn't never notice that. If you watch a Pixar movie, for example, uh, the pizza truck is in every Pixar movie, the one from Toy Story 1. It's in every Pixar movie. A113 is in every, to every Pixar movie you'll ever watch. It's an Easter egg. You have to look for it. It's in license plate or whatever. Those are Easter eggs. Matthew, with this verse, is giving us an Easter egg, and here's what it is. Matthew is reinforcing that Jesus is the descendant of David. David's name in Hebrew is made up of three words, dalet, vav, and dalet. And in Hebrew, uh, the letters would have corresponding numbers to them. Dalet was number four, vav was number six, and dalet was number four. So if you do that math really quickly, that equals 14. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew, before ever starting talking about Jesus, gives us his genealogy, reinforces that he is from Abraham, reinforces that he is from David, he's a descendant of David, um, and that he is the one that the Jewish people have been waiting for, the Messiah. He is the one to fulfill all the prophecies. He is the one to save mankind. He is the one that will fulfill God's plan for humanity. But here's what I find amazing about a chapter that most of us skip by. A bunch of names, and most of, most of us just go, I'm done with these names. Here's what I find amazing about this. When you learn who these people are, when you learn their story and what happened to them, you will see that Jesus' family tree and Jesus, the people that made up and got us to where we are today, that, that helped fulfill God's story to mankind, these people were some of the most unfit, unworthy people in history. Yet God used their story to ultimately bring redemption to the entire world. So let's go through some of those names. The first name we're going to look at is Abraham. You may know Abraham. Um, he's, he is, they, they, a lot of times people uh, know his story of him and, him and his son Isaac, uh, know that he's supposed to be the father of many nations. Uh, but you also know that Abraham was a liar. Like if you look at the story in Genesis, uh, here's what happened. He's in front of Pharaoh, and a separate time he's in front of King Abimelech. And Abraham was there with his wife. And when they asked him, hey, is this your wife? Uh, he says, no, 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 no. Uh, she, Sarah, she, she's my sister. She, she's not actually my wife. See, back then, if you were someone's wife, then ultimately you were their property. You were the property of your husband. That's how it was back then. We're not saying that's a good thing. It's obviously not. But he, you were your husband's property. So if a mighty, powerful leader or a king wanted you, but you were married, she, they, they couldn't have you because you were someone else's property. Unless that husband died or unless he died, if you know what I'm saying. So a leader, a powerful person, would see a woman that he wanted and found out that she was married, would go, uh, all right, I'm going to take care of the husband so that way I can have that woman. Abraham knew this. So Abraham says, no, 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 she, she's not my wife. She's my sister, which is actually kind of a half-truth. They share uh, one of the same parents. It's kind of a half-truth. Um, but he's obviously lying to save his own skin. He's not trying to help Sarah. He's not trying to help her. He's not trying to take care of his wife. He lied both to Pharaoh and to King Abimelech, saying, nope, this is not my wife, solely so he could save himself, solely because he did not want to die, solely because he did not trust that God was actually going to take care of him, even though God promised he's going to do amazing things through Abraham. He said, no, 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 uh, no, that's not, my, that's not my wife. Please don't kill me. That's not my wife. She's only my sister. Abraham was a liar. If you look at Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who's in the lineage of Jesus, he's a deceiver. In fact, his name literally meant deceiver. Jacob meant deceiver. 
You ever know someone who is really good at leading you to believe something that isn't actually true? Like, they just are really good at, like, they have a very weak relationship with the truth, if you know what I'm saying? Like, they just kind of manipulate it how they need to in order to maybe get some attention, maybe to get you to do what they want to do. They have a very loose relationship with the truth. I have a lot of friends that do that, actually, and I know who they are. So when they tell me stuff, I just take a grain of salt. I don't believe anything they say because I know they are deceivers. That's Jacob. He was a deceiver. His, his name literally meant deceiver. Jacob deceived his brother out of his birthright, which was like stealing, like if we made it to nowadays, it would be like stealing your sibling's inheritance so, for yourself. The thing that your, your sibling deserved, taking it for yourself. So Jacob deceived his brother so that way he could get his inheritance to take over the whole kingdom. He deceived his father and made his father give Jacob the blessing that was actually for his brother Esau. Jacob basically destroyed his family in order to get what he wanted and what he felt like he deserved. He got it by deceiving everybody. But Jacob, the deceiver, is part of the ancestry of Jesus. Let's look at Judah. Judah was a hypocrite. Judah was considered a righteous man. and In fact, he was the founder of the Israelite, the Israelite tribe of Judah. Um, he, he was considered a righteous man. Judah had three sons. His oldest, a guy named Ur, he was married to Tamar. Ur did something wrong in the sight of God, so God killed him. Ur is gone. Back then, when that would happen, uh, when your husband would die, in order to protect the wife, because again, that wife was your husband's property, back then, if you were a widow or if you did not have a husband, then you were in trouble in that society. So what they would do back then, especially the Israelites, to protect those women is if your husband died, then you would then marry the brother, whoever's next in line. It's like if I died, Erica would marry Shane, and she would be miserable, but that's what she would have to do. That's how it worked. So Ur died. Tamar now had to marry the next in line, Judah's other, other son named Onan. Onan did something terrible in the sight of God. You can read about it. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you can read it. It's in Genesis with weird detail for some reason. It's in there. So God kills him. So first, Ur does something bad. God kills him. Then Onan does something bad. God kills him. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. God's killing everybody up in here. Next, Tamar now has to marry Shelah. That's next in line. But Judah at this point is like, hold up, hold up, hold up. You are not marrying another son of mine so you can kill him. She, she, he doesn't blame his sons who actually did something wrong. He blames Tamar. He says, no, you're not doing that. You are gone. You're not marrying him. I will not give you permission. You're out of here. And again, now Tamar is done. She's in trouble in the society. There's, it's going to be hard for her to do anything. There is no hope. She's completely destroyed in that culture. So to take revenge, because she knows she's in trouble, she disguised herself as a prostitute. When Judah, this righteous man, goes out on a business trip, he sees Tamar not knowing it's her. He is with her uh, as, in her occupation, if you understand what I'm saying. He's with her. Holy Judah does that. When he comes back, they learn that Tamar, acting as a prostitute, gets pregnant. So they bring Tamar up, and Judah, being the hypocrite he is, saw her and said, you need to be burned to death for what you did. You went into prostitution, you got pregnant, you were going to be burned to death. And she goes, well, guess what, buddy? You're the father. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. He was just as guilty as she was, but he used his power and he used his status to condemn, to condemn somebody, even though he was just as guilty. I know we would never do that. We would never condemn, condemn someone's sin that we don't happen to struggle with, even though we have plenty of our own struggles that might be just as bad or might be just worse or definitely condemn you the same. We would never condemn them, even though we're struggling with our own sins. That would never be us. Or even worse, we would never condemn someone's sins 
when we struggle with the exact same sin behind closed doors when nobody sees us. We would never condemn a whole group of people for being wrong politically because they are just believing the, the news that they are consuming when we are doing the exact same thing, not us. We would never do that. We would never say, how can that person be a Christian and live that lifestyle while we live a lifestyle that's treating our spouse like crap, we're addicted to porn, we're gossiping, we never control our anger, or whatever else we struggle with. We would never do that. No, that's only Judah. We only know the other hypocrites. Judah, Jacob's son, a descendant of Jesus, has a child with Tamar. This child is his son and grandson at the same time. And this guy, Judah and Tamar, are in the family tree of Jesus. Judah was a hypocrite. Then there's Rahab. Rahab lived a lifestyle of sin. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Not only was she a Gentile, and she was not in the Jewish uh, nation, as in she was not part of the chosen people. She was also a prostitute. She lived a life that was completely opposite of what God commanded her. Her occupation, her job, did not honor God in anything that she did. And then when spies come to Jericho, she helps them. And when the Israelites take over the city, they remember Rahab and they remember her family. She comes in, she marries um, another uh, a Jewish person, and she becomes part of Jesus' heritage, even though she lived a, a lifestyle completely opposite of what God would say is good. Rahab lived a lifestyle of sin. Then there's Ruth. Ruth came from the wrong family. Ruth was a Moabite. Do you know what it means to be a Moabite? There's a story of Lot uh, in Genesis where Lot, is, who is the nephew of Abraham, after Sodom and Gomorrah happens and after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, Lot and his daughters are there and Lot's daughters start to have this belief that um, all the guys are dead because Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. There's nobody else left. They're like, well, we got to have some kids in order to keep going on in this site. We have to have boys. That's what we need to do. So they decide to get Lot drunk. They have sex with him and they both get pregnant. And so one of those kids that is birthed out of incest is a Moab. Every single Moabite is a child of incest, and that's Ruth. That's the family she's from. She came from the complete wrong family. The church I worked at before this, uh, we would see this constantly. We would have um, students that would come from uh, the neighborhood that would walk there. We would pick them up um, that lived close. Some of them lived in the, in the closest trailer park. Some of them lived in other, other neighborhoods, and we would see this happen constantly. We'd see people that were excited about it, but their parents had a cycle. They would get pregnant around 16. They would have the kids. They would have a lot more kids than they could afford. They would go on welfare. Their parents did the exact same thing to them. The parents before them did the exact same thing. And so we saw this cycle. We're like, you, you don't have to follow this cycle just because that's where your family is from. That's where you're from. You don't have to do it. You can do a lot of things. You can go to college. You can do what you need to do. And we saw some of those same people do the exact same thing around 16, 17, get pregnant, have to go on welfare. It was we hated seeing that. We saw that cycle continue. It's sometimes hard to do that. Ruth came from the wrong family, but yet she is part of the, of the lineage of Jesus. Then there's David. David was, David was called a man for God's own heart, but David was also an adulterer and a murderer. He's a king of the Israelites, and at a time where kings go off to war, David decides to stay back. And while he stays back, he goes up on the roof of his of his kingdom, and he's looking out, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath, ironically. And she's over there taking a bath, and he sees her. He likes what he sees. He calls her over to his kingdom. She comes over. They have sex, and then she gets pregnant. Even though her husband, Uriah, is off to war, being the guy you're supposed to be, fighting for his kingdom, fighting for David, where David's supposed to be, Uriah is doing that. While he is gone, his wife Bathsheba is with David. 
She gets pregnant, and David starts freaking out. He's like, I, this can't get out. This is like, this would be really bad if this got out. So um, I'm going to bring Uriah back from war. We're going to get Uriah drunk, and then we're going to have him go back to his house, and hopefully when he's in his house, he will be with his wife, and then we'll say, look, that's your child because you're with your wife. But Uriah was such a righteous person that he, would, he got drunk, and then when he got to his house, he refused to go in and sleep with his wife. He stayed outside because he said, my, my troops are out there. I should, cannot be doing that while they're out there. So his plan didn't work. So plan B was like, all right, well, I got to do something about Uriah. David tells the general, hey, put Uriah out in the front lines. When he does that, it's a death sentence for Uriah. There's no way he'd make it. He dies, and now he can just be with Bathsheba, and everything will be fine. David, David was an adulterer and a murderer. That's what he did. And then there's Solomon. Solomon was considered the, the wisest person ever lived. He was also a womanizer. If you've been reading with us, you've been reading Proverbs, you've been reading some of what Solomon said. But just because you are wise doesn't mean you're perfect. Just because you ask for wisdom doesn't mean you don't fall short. You know how many wives Solomon had? 700. It's a lot of wives. He also had 300 concubines. Great Christian husband, right? Even in a culture back then that would have many wives, this was a ridiculous. This was way too many. Over 1,000 women was, was for Solomon. Even that culture, that was unheard of. And I could go on and on and on about different people. I could tell you about Rehoboam, who created a civil war and divided the kingdom of Israel. I could tell you about Jehoram, who wanted to be king so badly that he killed all of his brothers in order to take over the kingdom. I could tell you about Manasseh, who was so evil that he sacrificed his own son to worship false gods, and they are all in the lineage of Jesus. I could go on and on. But what is the point? What's Matthew's point with including these people? Here is why that matters. God uses imperfect people to fulfill his perfect purposes. God always uses imperfect people to fulfill his perfect purposes. See, I don't know who you are really. I know the person that you want me to know. I know the, I know the person that you are trying to show off. I don't know who you are deep down. Only you know the struggles that you deal with. Only you know the, the sins that you struggle with. But you know who else also knows and understands? It's your heavenly Father. He knows exactly who you are. But even knowing the worst you that you can be, He still looks at you with love and with grace. I don't know what you've done in your past. You probably made some huge mistakes. Mistakes that if anyone else ever knew it, they would look at you differently. But God knows it. And here's what's amazing. God doesn't use you in spite of your mistakes. He uses every part of you, including your mistakes. The things that you regret, He redeems. The things that don't feel like have any purpose in your life, He gives them purpose. Those mistakes that you have made in the past, He tells you to give them to Him because He can make you new. I don't know where you came from. I don't know your family history. I don't know the sins that your family has passed down to you, the scars that your family has passed down to you, the generational sins that still affect you and your family today. I don't know what they are. I don't know where you came from. God does. He adopts you into his family. No matter where you come from, he considers you and treats you like a son or daughter. You don't need a certain status you don't need to have it all figured out. You just need to give it to Him. 
perfect Father who loves you just as you are. You can be made new. How do I know this? Because the genealogy of Jesus. Some of the people in Jesus' genealogy, in his family tree, some of those people, they saw their sin, they saw their mistake, they turned back to God because of it, and they were completely changed because of it. Some of the people in Jesus' genealogy in his family tree, some of them, they never turned back. They started evil, they remained evil, and God used them anyways. God's ultimate plan is going to happen, but he loves you enough to allow you to choose to be part of it. So here's how Matthew chapter 1 could really read. I edited it for you. Here's how it really could read. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. A liar was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of a deceiver who robbed his brother of his blessing. The deceiver, the father of a hypocrite who had two kids with his prostitute daughter-in-law, Perez and Zerah. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was a prostitute. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was from the wrong family. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of a murderer and adulterer. That murderer and that adulterer was the father of a womanizer, whose mother had been married to a murdered man's wife, whose mother had been a murdered man's wife. That's how it could read. And you know who wrote all this? Matthew. You know what his job was? His job was to be a tax collector. That was his job. You know what a tax collector did? A tax collector would go to the rest of his people. He was a Jewish tax collector. He would go to the Jewish people and collect the taxes for Rome. And then he could, t- he could charge with everyone on top of it. If you had to pay $100 to Rome, he could say, you got to pay 200 He would pocket the rest. He deceived and he hurt his own people. He was considered a traitor and no one liked him. In fact, when Jesus called him over to be a disciple, the rest of the disciples were like, are you sure about this guy? Because they hated him. Imagine being part of a small group and the entire small group hates you. That's what happened. Jesus' small group, the entire group said, not this dude. He, he's, robbing, he's been robbing us for years, not him. No way. That's who Matthew was. But Jesus saw in Matthew what no one else could see. Purpose. Jesus loved Matthew. He had a plan for Matthew. The story of the Messiah comes from dysfunction. But out of that dysfunction is hope. You can have that hope. If God can bring the Messiah from the people he brought, he can use you. But it starts with a decision. It starts with you saying to God, yes, I will follow. Yes, I will give what I have to you. Yes, I will surrender to you. I don't know what it, I don't know 100% what it is going to take me. I don't, I don't have my life where I want it to be, but God, if you can use me, I'm going to say yes to you. So even though we're all watching from home, and even though your kids may be making a mess downstairs, and even though there's distractions, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes. Whether it's to say yes to God for the first time, maybe someone shared this video and you're watching this, and for the first time, you're hearing about the story of Jesus in a way that you never heard before. Maybe it's to say yes to God because you know your past, you know your struggles, and you've been holding on to that, so you need to say yes to God. I want to give you that opportunity today to do that. Say yes to God. He wants to free you 
from yourself. He wants to free you from your sins. He already paid the price of our sins. He already paid the price of those mistakes, those things you do not like about yourself. He already paid for it. All you have to do is accept that grace. So I want to encourage you to pray this with me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. Help me to follow you. I turn from my old self to become new in you. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. If that's the first time you've ever prayed that prayer, or if that's something you've prayed that you've done before, but you are trying to come back and, and start, it, start that relationship with Jesus again, I want to encourage you to let us know. Put on the comments. You can email us, info at ImpactChurchMD. Tell somebody about the decision that you have made. We want to know about it. This is not the end of your story. This is just the beginning of it. So as we close today, I want to encourage you to sing this song, Grace to Grace, with us.